are you? Who are you? What is your identity? How do you form your identity? And with these, with these questions, there are so many answers that are given to us today, so many options. Are you defined by your choices, your job, your major? Are you defined by your family, your friends, your romantic relationships? Are you defined by your hairstyle, your clothing fashion, your politics? Are you defined by the things at home or the things when you're on a travel vacation? Are you defined by God or some spiritual path? Are you defined, is your identity in your money, your status, your accomplishments? Is it in your sexuality, your gender, your ethnicity? Is it your musical tastes, your diet, your favorite foods, your exercise community? Who are you? In a world of, of so many different options that are all sort of competing for us to, to choose me, choose me, what is actually your authentic self? With all these different options, what is your true self? In this breakout, we are going to examine the cultural water that we are all swimming in today, specifically these messages that we hear about identity. And we're going to try to understand both the good and the bad of those messages, and then, by the end, show how we are invited to receive something better. What I'm teaching today partly comes from this book, Rethink Yourself, The Power of Looking Up Before Looking In by Trevin Wax. Some of you received it on your uh, chair today, so that's our gift to you. Please enjoy. Maybe start a book club at your campus. And, and just honestly, if you're like, I'm not a reader, I'm not going to read this, please give it to a friend that you think will read it. Great. Okay, so please flip to page 34 and 35 in your packets. And please do grab a pen if you need one. There are some up here. You can just raise your hand. Uh, because I am going to be asking you to draw some things uh, on your outline there. Yes. Anybody need a pen before we start? Oh, great. You all are great students with pens. Let me pray. And then we'll start with this first point, the search. So let's pray. Father God, we just want to pause and ask for your help. Would you help us, Lord, to first just be able to see the water that we're swimming in? It's hard to do, so please help us to see it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see both the good and the bad in the messages we hear today. But most of all, God, I pray that you would help the eyes of our hearts to be opened to see the beauty of the identity that we are offered in Christ. God, you must do this work. I, I'm, I'm weak. I can't make it happen. Uh, but I pray that you'd use my words and use our time together today uh, in order for us all in the room to see the beauty of the identity in Christ that we're offered. Please do that, God. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So the subtitle of this breakout is Finding Your True Self, which refers to the searching work of identity discovery, which is characteristic of identity formation today. And the idea is that you have to find it, that it is a search. But in order to understand the search today, we actually have to pause and go back more than 100 years to understand how identity was given in a traditional model. To help us understand these two models, again, I'll be drawing on, on Trevin Wax's insights from his book. Um, and in, in this book, he talks about this model of sort of three directions of looking. Uh, the three options are looking around, looking up, and looking in. Those are the three ways of looking. And I've decided to represent this by triangles, which I'm going to hold up things and I'll ask you to draw some. 
Now, the first triangle in each of these is the most important one. The first triangle defines and shapes everything else about the identity. And the first model of identity is the traditional model. So please draw this on your outline. So three triangles, one triangle pointing to the left. No, the right. <laughs> Sorry. It can be left as well, left or right. And the next triangle pointing up, and the final triangle pointing down. What these triangles represent is looking around, looking up, and looking in. And as I said, the first triangle is the most important. So if you want, you could even put a circle around that. That's the most important one, looking around. Now, what that means is that in the traditional model of identity, you look around and you look and see, what do my parents need me to be? What does my village, my tribe, my society need me to be? Who do my kids need me to be? You know, who, who's my father? What profession he is? Who's my mother? You know, how does she live her life? And that's who I am. And it's an identity that is assigned by the community for you, usually based on the needs of the community. You know, hey, you know, son, we need you here around the farm. Okay, dad, I'm a farmer then. Got it. Now, there's some good about this model. There's some cons. We'll talk later. But the good about this model is that it leads to a really highly functioning society that's very highly integrated with each other. Your identity is based on all the other people around you, and their identity is based on all the other people around them. So we all are interconnected, all sort of depending on one another, relying on each other in our identities. So that's looking around. That looking around identity is reinforced by looking up, some kind of a god or religious system or spiritual belief that actually is sort of a handmaiden to the looking around. So it's saying, yes, you're a father, or yes, you're a sister, but, but God or gods or goddesses or whatever, they agree with that too. So they're going to help you to be fertile. They're going to help you to be mighty in battle. They're going to help you to, to do your job. Maybe you even have a goddess or a god you pray to, like the god of blacksmithing or the goddess of industry. I don't know. Like you, the, the up is going to only reinforce the around. And then maybe if you have time, you can look in, say, well, what kind of blacksmith do I want to be? But it doesn't really matter that much. So the individual comes last, but the community comes first. That's the traditional model of identity. Now, we're not going to talk about this traditional model very much because it's not the message that we're told today. But it is critical to understand it because it is that model that the current model is saying, we're not going to do that. So the current model of identity is in reaction and in rebellion against the traditional model. Now, I'm not saying either of these is, is I'm not making critiques yet of it. Uh, we're just talking about what it is and what's good about it. But it's understand that the, the modern model rejects the traditional model. Um, in that traditional society, there's not a lot of freedom. So you feel constrained to be what you are told. And it can feel oppressive. There's this longing to get free. You know, to be your own person, live your own dreams, leave the farm, go to the city. Dad, I don't want to be a farmer. I want to be a singer, something like that. <laughs> now, raise your hand. How many of you have seen Frozen? Pretty much everybody. Okay. How about Moana? Oh, yeah, even more people. Wow. Okay, great. So this will this will resonate because you know it. It's like Elsa sings in the song Let It Go. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. 
So that's the pressure that a traditional society can create, which leads to the individual feeling restrained with a desire to break free. Like Moana sings in How Far I'll Go. I know everybody on this island seems so happy on this island. Everything is by design. I know everybody on this island has a role on this island. Maybe I can roll with mine? I can lead with pride. I can make us strong. I'll be satisfied if I play along. But the voice inside sings a different song. And then she concludes, what is wrong with me? Or she's living in a traditional society and yet feeling the constraints of that and wondering what's wrong with me for wanting something different than what's being assigned to me. So that's the traditional model. Now let's turn then to the modern day. What new message are we being told about identity? In what direction do we begin the search? So please draw these triangles. First, we look in, triangle pointing down. Then we look around. And then finally, we look up. First we look in, then we look around, then we look up. Now again, the first triangle is the most important. That's the primary one. Looking in. Look in. You do you. Follow your heart. Chase your dreams. Speak your truth. Find yourself. You are enough. I just have to be true to myself. These are the phrases and slogans that are describing looking in. How many of you have heard those slogans? Yeah, if you spend any time on TikTok, you don't feel that. <laughs> it's going to be there. So first we look in, and then we look around. What we've discovered within, we then display around to other people for them to see and for them to celebrate. And then finally, as an option, if you want, you can look up. But looking up, remember, is subsidiary to looking in. First you look in and find, who am I? And then maybe I will curate a buffet of spiritual options. Maybe Christianity could be included. Maybe a little bit of Buddhism. Maybe a little bit of this or that. Maybe a little bit of Oprah. And I'm going to, to curate this sort of spiritual buffet that, that, that is able to reinforce what I've found within be able to give an added spiritual dimension of transcendence to what I've already found within. So if I read something in the Bible that I don't like, I ain't going to do that because that's not what I've found within my heart. So I'm going to take the pieces that I like. Ooh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I like that one. But everything in Leviticus, I'm just not even going to read that. So that's where everything is subsidiary of the first one. Look in. Now, there's a word that thinkers use for this concept of identity. And it's a big word, but I want to teach it to you guys because you're all smart, and we're going to give you the definition of it so you know what it means. Expressive individualism. Please write it down. Expressive individualism. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-I-V-E-I-N-D-I-V-I-D-U-A-L-I-S-M. <laughs> Expressive individualism. Let me unpack that for you. Individualism means that the individual is the key thing, not the community, the individual. Look within yourself to find your own dreams and, des and desires. The focus is on you, the focus is on self, the focus is not on the community. And then the second part is expressive. You need external validation and affirmation of your internal identity. So you must express those desires and dreams outwardly 
and receive recognition from other people. The community doesn't define you, but the community celebrates you. If they don't, they're denying your identity, and that's seen today as immoral. Alan Noble writes in the book, You Are Not Your Own, we strive to independently define our identity, but we are always dependent upon others for the recognition of that identity. So we look in, and then we express around, and then maybe we add God to kind of make it even, even cooler and even more transcendent. So briefly, uh, you see there you have sort of some, some squares drawn in your outline. Maybe the triangles and the big word of expressive individualism like doesn't work for you. So let me tell it in a, in a brief story. There are five big questions of life. How did everything start? What's wrong with the world? How do you make it right? How do you be part of that solution and live a good life? And where is everything going? So beginning, problem, solution, good life, the end. And so the secular salvation schema, which is a phrase by Mark Sayers and John Mark Comer, and you can check out the resources for the podcast, they say that uh, in the beginning, there's no God. So you have a blank slate. That's where everything starts. And so everybody's free to do whatever they want, be whoever they are, because there is no God that tells us, no God that created us. We, we don't have a purpose. You get to figure it out. But the problem is that society, darn society, has told you what to do and how to live and what to do for sex and what to do for your major and what to do for this and that and the other thing and what clothing to wear. And that's oppressive. So the solution is to reject all of society, deconstruct the social constructions, and break free and live authentic to you, you alone, not these constructions that people have told you how to live. So break free, look within, and then whatever you find within, live your authentic life. Do that, even if other people say, what are you doing? You say, I'm being me. And that, that's the only moral, authentic way to live. Now probably it's gonna look like a life of pleasure because whatever you find within is gonna be a desire. A desire fulfilled, the Bible says, is a tree of life, but hope deferred makes the heart sick. So we can just take that bad verse, boom, heart, you know, heart, heart sick, so I just wanna live a life of pleasure. So whatever I have enjoyment of, I'm going to follow that. And then in the end, well, if we can all finally get on board with not suppressing and oppressing people, but let them all just be free to be themselves, then we'll finally have a utopia here on Earth. With a quick parenthesis, and then we're all going to die. So there's not any hope. There's not any hope for a future because there is no God, and this life is all that is. But let's not talk about that. So that's the secular salvation schema, those five questions. Tim Keller, if you look on, on the page to your left, he has a quote. The only heroic narrative we've got left in our culture is the individual looking inside, seeing who they want to be, and asserting that over and against everyone else in society. That's the heroic narratives. That's Elsa. That's Babe. Every cartoon, every sitcom. And so it goes in extraordinarily deep. And the idea is you have to be yourself. You've probably seen this hero story in many narratives, stories, Movies like, and raise your hand if you know these, Free Guy. Okay, one person, okay. Um, Captain Marvel, that's all about expressive individualism. Uh, the new Amazon version of Cinderella, very explicit. Nobody's seen that? Okay. Yes, very explicit with this narrative. Even Star Wars Visions, the Tatooine Rhapsody episode, one person. Okay, two people. All right. Let me give you some movie examples from Frozen and Moana. We all know those. <laughs> Elsa sings in Let It Go. It's time to see. 
what I can do. To test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. She finally is deconstructing the oppressive social you know, structures that were around her. She finally is free. Or again, in Frozen number two, in the song Show Yourself, where she's singing this duet with her mom. Show yourself. Step into the power. Grow yourself into something new. You are the one you've been waiting for all of my life. And I actually just watched the clip recently on YouTube. And uh, the face she makes as she's hearing her mom sing that to her is like just this, this transcendent joy. Yes. Yes, finally. I'm the one that I've been waiting for. This journey within myself. That's where freedom's found. That's where life is. Just the affirmation of me. Show yourself is actually a perfect summary statement of expressive individualism. Look in, then show yourself to the world. Moana, at the turning point near the end of the film, she sings in the, in the song, I Am Moana. And the call isn't out there at all, it's inside me. It's like the tide, always falling and rising. I will carry you here in my heart, you'll remind me. That come what may, I know the way. What's the way? I am Moana. <laughs> and she dives in and gets that infinity stone or whatever it is. <laughs> and she saves the planet. Now what's the heroic narrative there? Me. Looking within, I did that. My society told me to play this different thing on the island. Everybody has a role on this island. Maybe I can roll with mine. No, I will look within, and I will save the world by looking within. Now, quick side note, they're not entirely consistent, because as soon as she says, oh, I am Moana, it's actually, I almost makes you cry because I love this scene. She begins to see these ghosts of her ancestors that are affirming her. So it's the outside witness affirmation of her, that actually she's connecting with something that is transcendent, that's bigger than herself. But the whole point of the narrative is saying like, she looked within while she was by herself, just with her little oar and whatever she's doing, just by herself. The hero goes inward. The hero goes inward and then expresses outward. And that's what saves the day. At the very end of the movie, she puts the seashell on the stack instead of another rock because she's looked within, discovered her true self. That's the hero's story. So, First, what's good about this model of identity? There's an incredible amount of freedom. Wow, so much freedom. Freedom can be good. We don't have to be stuck with what family or society defines us as. We, maybe your parents made you take piano lessons, but you really wanted to skateboard. Maybe society said you should go to college and get an office job, but you want to be an ice road trucker. Well, <laughs> you can. <laughs> you can be whatever you want. There's an incredible amount of freedom and an excitement of an, sort of an infinite horizon of options. That's very freeing, that's very exciting. And biblically, we can agree with this desire to be authentic, to move away from hypocrisy and lying. We should live truthfully and not be fake. Jesus condemned the hypocritical religious leaders who would say one thing but do another. They were inauthentic in that sense. So those are the two models for finding identity. We've got the traditional and we've got the modern.
And there's certainly some good in each of them, as we've mentioned, but there are also significant problems. So let's move to point two, the cost. The traditional model has many problems. The crushing of the individual, the denial of dreams, the pressure to conform, the restraints, the constraints. But we don't really need to talk about the problems of the traditional model because that's history and there's probably not many people in the United States today that are like, let's do that. Um, that's not the cultural water we're swimming in today. Let's instead focus and consider the costs of the modern identity formation of expressive individualism. And I'd like to highlight that for us in three ways. The modern identity is fragile, it is exhausting, and it is sinful. The modern identity is fragile, it is exhausting, and it is sinful. First, it is fragile. Since the modern identity is based on what desires we found within our hearts, it is so fragile, these internal desires need constant affirmation from others. So we must constantly signal it, show it, express it, post about it. And we need people to not just see it, but then to celebrate it. We desperately need that recognition. Anything less than celebration radically threatens not just our feelings, but our very identity. As Trevin Wax says, to not affirm someone's true self is in some sense to deny their personhood. And sadly, we experience not just threats to our identity, uh, but the risk of even losing that identity because it's so fragile. For instance, an identity based on the desire to be a boyfriend evaporates if she dumps you. Identity as a straight A student disintegrates if you get a B or fail a class. Your identity as a beautiful Instagram influencer falls apart if you can't travel because of COVID, or if your, your followers aren't liking your posts anymore, or if the algorithm changes, oh my goodness, or if you lose followers and you're canceled. Your identity as an athlete crashes down if you're no longer able to get the approval from your coaches, your teammates, or especially if you have a career-ending injury. And then, that's just with things out there. What about things in here? What happens if your desires change? Who are you? Are you your previous desires? Are you your current desires? Is the true you actually some future desire you haven't even had yet? What if you have conflicting desires, three, four, five different desires? Which one do you choose? Which one of those desires is the real you? This can be incredibly disorienting, and it creates this existential anxiety, sort of a, a constant identity crisis, because the modern identity is fragile. Secondly, the modern identity is exhausting. It's exhausting. And the reason is because it's based around performance. The emphasis is on you, your achievement. You must be beautiful. You must be powerful. You must be rich, you must be popular, you must be successful, and you need to constantly be cultivating your brand identity on social media. You create yourself, and that school project is never done. The message of you can do anything you want to sounds really good when you're 21 and when you have that freedom, or when you're healthy, or when you have financial security, when you have not yet cut off other options through commitments. It sounds like great freedom. We're told the only thing holding you back is you. Yes, that's freedom, but it's also exhausting. What if you aren't reaching your dreams? Whose fault is that? You, you alone. And this leads to intense anxiety, 
this pressure of you better do the right thing and live your dreams. You have a fear of better options. What if there's a better thing out there? You have fear of missing out. You have to hustle to create your best life. The pressure of this is overwhelming and it is burning us all out. There's never a firm answer to the question of who are you because the search is never ending. You never arrive. And however fast you run the treadmill performance to achieve your identity, how do you know when you've arrived? It is never enough. The modern identity is exhausting. Third, it's sinful. The modern identity places you at the center instead of God. From a biblical worldview, this is a fundamental sin against our creator God to replace him, to say essentially, God, get off the throne. I am the center of the universe. I don't want to look up. I'm going to look within. I will write my own story. I'll create my own morality. I'll create my own identity. I'll create my own purpose. This is the way that the Bible describes this. If you flip over in Romans 1, on the other page of your packet there, 30, page 34, Romans 1, 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And friends, I just, I just want to warn you, just honestly, from the scriptures, that whatever is sinful will kill you. Whatever is sinful will enslave you. Whatever is sinful will bring God's wrath against you. And whatever you have on the throne of your life is ultimately your God. And if it's self on the throne, not the real God, the Bible calls this idolatry. We have made an idol out of exalting ourselves. So the modern identity is sinful. So those are the three problems with modern identity formation. It's fragile, it's exhausting, and it's sinful. The ironic tragedy in all this is that the modern identity promises ultimate freedom. Be whoever you want to be. Don't let anyone else tell you how to live. You're the standard. You can do whatever you want. But this freedom turns out to actually be slavery because we become enslaved to other people's approval. We become enslaved to our own performance. And we become enslaved to our own desires. Let me just give just a personal example. As I've been thinking about this, like where, where am I guilty of this? Just kind of give you a, a case study. I see the cost of this in my own life because I do live in the same world as you, the same water that I'm, we're all culturally swimming in, the same pressures of modern identity formation. So I'm kind of a nerd. The only hobby, really, truly, that I have is reading, <laughs> is books. It's really the only hobby. Um, I don't run. I don't really have any kind of skill in most other things. <laughs> I, just, I just read books. <laughs> now, if I follow the modern identity model, um, that means that I look within, see my identity as a reader. I see this desire to be well-read and erudite and an intellectual. And then I want to express that outwardly, hopefully to you all, on Instagram, where you will like my posts about my books. Please like them. <laughs> and I want to display myself as smart. I want people to say, wow, Andy, you read so many books. <laughs> I say, yes. Not as many as last year, but you know, <laughs> things like that, you know. But let me tell you, friends, it's never enough. It's never enough. Doesn't matter how many likes I get, doesn't matter how many positive comments, I've never read enough books 
I always want to read more. That book table out there, it's like crack cocaine for me. <laughs> and now I, I want them all. I'm like, oh, I've read like these 20, but I haven't read these other 20. You know, it's just ridiculous. I'm always adding more to my list, and I'm tempted, tempted to prioritize reading over my family, to prioritize reading over sleep, to prioritize reading cool, trendy new books instead of the Bible, which I've already read. So like, you know, I already know it. It ultimately, if I follow this path, I'll become a slave to this identity of a reader. Books will become my prison of literary exhaustion. So what do I do? Are books evil? Should I burn my library? Be like, I read one book, Fahrenheit 451, and that's why I burned it all down. <laughs> Should I stop reading books altogether? You know? Are they too dangerous for me as a counterfeit identity? What's the answer? And that's what we'll look at in a second. Because, just a little preview, if my identity is in Christ, I'm fully satisfied in him, and therefore I can receive books not as my identity, which is silly, but as simply a good gift from a good savior. So, both traditional and individualistic models create an unlivable pressure. The quote at the top of your outline summarizes it in a beautiful way. Again, Trevin Wax, Rethink Yourself. He says, start with yourself and you'll collapse. Start with community and you'll conform. Start with God and you'll come into your own by finding your truest self in relation to him. So how do we find our true self? What's the destination for our search? And that is the thrilling good news of the gospel. That is our answer. So next point here. Jesus Christ graciously gives us the answer to our search for our true self. We have one more set of triangles. Please draw this. First triangle is looking up. Second triangle is looking around. Third triangle is looking in. Up, around, in. Remember, the most important triangle is the first one. Look up. Most important thing is to look up and receive from God your new identity in Christ. As you receive that, you look around, particularly to the local church, which seeks to reinforce that new identity in Christ, remind you of it, remind you of who you are in Christ. And then finally, looking within, what are the unique ways that God has built me? What unique contributions can I make to the world? Let's do that, because God built me for that in order to glorify him and love others. The Bible describes this identity of being in Christ in a ton of ways. It's all throughout the New Testament. And Jerry Bridges, in the other book that some of you have in your seats, in his book, Who Am I? Identity in Christ, he describes it in five aspects, and each one of these could be a whole separate breakout, so we're not going to unpack them. But those five are justified, adopted, new creation, saint, and servant. So good. So why is the gospel such thrilling good news? It means you don't need to achieve a performed identity when you've received a purchased identity. And by purchased, I mean Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins to reconcile you to God. He did all the work. So you do not need to achieve a performed identity when you have received a purchased identity. The gospel story is a better story. So look with me again at those five big questions of life, beginning, problem, solution, good life, the end. You can display that as a meta-narrative that is more beautiful than the secular one. In the beginning, we were created 
to worship God. That's what true, real freedom looks like. The problem is that Adam and Eve said, no, we're going to worship ourselves. We're going to make our own, our own identity, our own meaning, our own morality. We think we know what's right for ourselves. So it's wrong worship. The solution is the cross of Christ that forgives us and reconciles us back to God. So we are now set free to do what we were always designed to do, which is worship God. The good life is spreading that worship. Talk to any DM staff and they will get really excited about the advancement of God's kingdom, about evangelism, about disciples being made, about all nations hearing the good news of Jesus. That is our good life, spreading that worship so that more and more people can move from death to life, from wrong worship, which is slavery, to the freedom of worshiping the God who created them and loves them. And then the end, is not death. Death is just the entrance into perfect, joyful worship of our Creator God who's reconciled us to Himself so that we might see the display of His grace throughout the endless ages ahead. That's the gospel meta narrative. Why is it more beautiful? Because it provides the opposite of all the negative characteristics that we had just looked at of expressive individualism. We saw how the modern identity is fragile, exhausting, and sinful. In contrast, the gospel identity is resilient, restful, and righteous. Let's unpack those. A gospel identity is resilient, restful, and righteous. First, it's resilient. It doesn't matter what Satan accuses, what the world says, or even what we think about ourselves. What God says about us matters 10,000 times more we can endure criticism, failure, misunderstanding, awkwardness, loneliness, rejection with the buoyant hope of the gospel. Colossians 2 says it like this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God has made us alive. He has forgiven us. He's triumphed for us. Who can threaten that? No one and no thing is greater than God. Therefore, the gospel identity is resilient. Second, it's restful. Because our identity in Christ is all about Christ's work, not our work. He dies on the cross, not us. He lives the good life that we can't do. No more is it our performance, no more of our exhaustion, no more of our achievement culture. We simply look up in faith and are forgiven. Remember, you don't need to achieve a performed identity when you have received a purchased identity. Jesus gives this offer in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The gospel identity is restful. Third, righteous. The gospel identity is righteous. Even though we were sinful and had rebelled against our creator God, like we saw in Romans 1, God loved us so much that he sent Christ to die in our place, to pay for all our sin, to absorb God's wrath so that we might be forgiven and declared righteous because we are now in Christ. The biblical word for all of that is justification. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it like this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. The gospel identity is righteous. So we saw that ultimately the modern identity brings enslavement. In contrast, the gospel identity gives us freedom. We are free from sin. We are free from God's wrath. We are free from the demand to work to earn our status. We are free to enjoy God as we are created to. And yes, the Bible talks in Romans 6. Objection, Andy. Doesn't Romans 6 talk about how we're slaves to God, not free? Yes, but it's the only kind of slavery that is actual true freedom. It's the slavery of a fish needing to stay in the water in order to swim. Of saying, fish, you may not go in a tree. Fish in a tree, how can that be? It's a Dr. Seuss book. A fish is constrained to swim only in water, but in the water is where it's actually free. Tim Keller expounds on this gospel identity in a short clip called The Identity You're Looking For, and the quote's on your outline there. Keller says, you want to be yourself, but you don't like yourself. And you've tried desperately to like yourself, and it's not working, because you always feel like, I got to perform, and you never feel good enough. But the gospel is there's one master that if you serve him and you fail him, he'll forgive you. And you get him, he'll satisfy you. Your career will never be able to satisfy, or never be able to die for your sins. And there's one identity that is not subject to ups and downs of performance. It's called justification by faith alone. It's called being united with Christ. It's called being righteous in him. It's called having the Father look at you and see you as a delight and something perfect in Jesus Christ. Did you know that there was such an identity as that? That's good news. Now, if you're hearing this good news for the first time today, or maybe you've heard it a bunch of times, but maybe there's something about it right now that it's just clicking for you, I want to invite you to respond. Stop putting your faith in yourself to perform and to achieve, to earn, to be yourself. Instead, put your faith in Jesus and receive the identity that he gives you based on what he has performed, what he's earned, what he's purchased on your behalf. Stop looking in, stop looking around, but instead humbly look up to Jesus and he will give you a resilient, restful, and righteous new identity in him. Jesus will set you free. In our final point, I'd like to close with some practical steps that you can take to live out your authentic identity in Christ, which is our response to the answer. Point number four. Our response has three R's, and I think this is what Lincoln Fitch thought of, these three R's, so kudos to Lincoln. Reorder, recognize, and recommit, and those stand for reorder your authority. I'll repeat these. Recognize the cultural narrative and recommit to obedience. Those are our three responses. First, reorder your authority. Reorder your authority. Alan Noble, in his book, You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World, makes the weighty but simple point, who owns you? To whom do you belong? And these are, there are basically two answers. The modern model says you are your own and you belong to yourself. The gospel model says you belong to God and you are not your own. It's really a question of authority. Or to go back to the language of the triangles, to reorder your authority means to reorder the triangles. It means that looking up comes first, and that shapes the way we look around and the way we look in. All the big questions of life are answered in radically different ways depending on your authority. What is my purpose? How should I live? What kind of sexual ethics should I have? How should I use my money? How should I spend my time? How do I navigate relationships? 
if you are your own, you get to pick whatever you want. I mean, you could do something illegal, and then society and their social construct will say no. Okay, <laughs> that's just because they're oppressive, and we should. But if if you belong to God, you have to do what God says. You belong to Him. That's what authority means. Do you belong to yourself? Do you belong to God? And the, the Bible calls us to reject the authority of self and reorder our authority to look up, to recognize that we belong to God. The biblical word for that is repentance. To turn away from self and to turn to God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says it this way, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So... Glorify God in your body. Practically, this means that anytime there's a disagreement between what you want and what God wants, you do what God says. If you do what you want, that means that you are still placing your authority above God. But if you are in Christ, you are not your own. So please, reorder your authority because you belong to God. Second response, recognize the cultural narrative. Recognize the cultural narrative. The reason you need to do that, to recognize it, is because the story you believe shapes the life you live. The story you believe shapes the life you live. If you believe the story of the modern identity narrative, that will shape what you value, how you think, how you live, and believe me, it will not shape you to be like Christ. It will shape you probably to be a hyper-individualistic consumer. Everything in the world exists for me. People, the environment, plastic. Uh, social media, my phone, my classes, my parents, everything exists for me. That's what the modern identity will shape you in because you belong to yourself. Learn to recognize what messages you're hearing from culture in movies, shows, videos, video games, advertisements. You can't fight something you can't see, so begin to have a discerning ear. Practice critical thinking, evaluating everything in light of the gospel story. And if you don't, you'll be shaped and you won't even know it. So here's some analysis questions you could ask. What message is this presenting to me? And you're scrolling through Instagram and you see an ad. What, what is this saying? What, it does, what is this claiming the problem is? What is this offering as a solution, which usually is a product? You know? What does it say about God? Maybe it says there is no God. You're God. What does it say about me? And how is this story that I'm being presented here in this video game, in this ad, in this movie, what story, is, is this similar or different than the gospel story? And to assist you all in recognizing the cultural narrative, I've assembled some recommended resources to help you learn more about the modern cultural narrative so you can recognize it and resist it. Now, on your outline there, on the bottom of the left page, is a QR code. So if you want to, you don't have to, but please pull out your phone right now and swipe open to your camera and just point that camera right at the QR code and it should pop up and be like, do you want to visit this website? And then you say, yes, I do. <laughs> and that'll pull open a Google Doc, which will give you a recommended list of resources, videos, articles, podcasts, books. And what I've done to try to help serve you is that they are ordered in the length of time it takes. So the shortest thing on there is a 60-second TikTok video, which is a summary of this book, Rethink Yourself. And then, of course, you want to go hardcore. You can go all the way down to the bottom 
and read that book that takes a long time. So it's kind of ordered by how long it takes. There are also two book giveaways. Some of you came in here and there's a book on your seat. That's our gift to you. So please read those. And why, why do we have to do all that? You know, why is it important to, to do these resources, like learn these things? Because the story you believe shapes the life you live. Recognize the cultural narrative, because if you don't, it'll shape you. And the number three, recommit to obedience. The gospel motivates obedience. It really does. If you're a Christian, you think and act different because you are different. Your activity flows out of your identity. Do you find that there are beliefs you have that contradict the Bible? Well, then you choose to believe the Bible and change your beliefs because you're a disciple of Christ. Follow him in radical obedience in your heart, in your mind. Are there practices and behavior you're doing that contradict the Bible? Then put off the sinful behavior. Put on the right behavior that God calls you to because you are a disciple of Christ. You're called to follow him in radical obedience. Now, if you say, well, I'm going to follow these and these, but not these. It's like, well, just honestly, you're not following Jesus then. You're following yourself. You're curating out what you want to do and just doing only the things you want to do. So ultimately, you're at the center, and God is taking the last step in the, in the chain there. You're looking out for a little bit of transcendent spiritual sort of a high. Thomas Jefferson actually did that very explicitly. He took a Bible, and he took a, a pen knife, and, and he just cut out the passages he liked, and then he put them together. And you can look at it. You can go to the Bible Museum down in D.C. You can Google it, the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Um, and he just picked the passages he liked, and he cut out all the rest. And we're really tempted to do that, really tempted to do that. We might not do it physically with the Bible, but we do it with our lives. And if, you're, if you are following Jesus as a disciple, to follow him means radical obedience. Jesus says, do this, and we say, you died for me. I'll do it. The gospel motivates radical obedience. One quick side note. You do need to read the Bible to understand what the Bible calls you to. So if you're like, I don't really know what Jesus calls me to do, then you need to read the Bible. Um, so at the back of the, of the main, main session room there, there's a, just a, a whole table of free Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, grab one. Uh, I would recommend reading Luke as a first, first thing to read. If you don't know where that is, just grab a stack, like, where's Luke in this Bible? And they'll put, like, a little sticker or something as a, a bookmark, and you can read Luke. And if you've read Luke already, then I'd say read Ephesians. If you've read Ephesians, then go read Romans. That's probably a good, good lineup. Again, remember, you've got to remember the gospel, and then radical obedience. All this obedience is not in order to be a holy person, but because in Christ you are a holy person. So live like it. Recommit to obedience because God has rescued you to live a new life. So that's our response to the gospel answer in three R's. Reorder your authority, recognize the cultural narrative, and recommit to obedience. Let's close out with one last thought. If you remember, we asked at the beginning, who are you? And that can be a confusing question. There are so many competing answers from family, friends, social media, even ourselves. Thankfully, God's voice can rise above the noise and answer firmly and graciously who we are in Christ. This leads to a better identity than any other identity we can be assigned from society or that we can discover from within. In Romans 16, Paul is greeting a few friends in the city of Rome, and in verse 10 he says simply, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Who are you? 
If you are a Christian, then your new identity is approved in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we give you praise for the new identity that we are graciously given in Christ. We thank you that Christ has done all the work, that we really are free. We just thank you for that. Help us, Lord, to, to do all these things, to, to reorganize our authority, to, to recognize the culture narratives, to see that, that the gospel really is better, and to recommit to obedience. Please empower us, Holy Spirit, in radical obedience, because we just cannot do it on our own. So we pray for your help, that you would be glorified uh, through our bodies because you've purchased us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming.